Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. In this podcast, I answer the questions I and others have about the realities of product management, product marketing, going to market, and critical skills for business success like persuasion and influence. My goal for this podcast is to give you the best mental models, tools, techniques, and secrets for creating value in the world and delivering solutions to problems that need solving. This is episode number 331. And as always, you can find all the links I mentioned in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 331. We have ignition. So my launching off point for this podcast episode is the metaphors we use for creating new products, especially software products. I've always thought these metaphors are very interesting, especially the most commonly used one, especially because it's so misleading if you don't use it right. I'll also share my favorite metaphor for creating useful products that people love, which is not all that much in use, but it's very powerful. I didn't come up with it, although I've added a few of my own twists, thanks in part to that great product management thinker, caustic chef Gordon Ramsay. I'll explain that a little later. Now, technically, a metaphor is defined as a figure of speech that, for rhetorical effect, directly refers to one thing by mentioning another. Now, of course, in common use, we think of a metaphor more as a cognitive device. A more cognitively oriented definition might be something like, a metaphor is a comparison that shows how two things that are not alike in most ways are similar in another important way. Now, in this usage, metaphors are kind of like a mental model. You can take what you know about one end of the metaphor, the thing being compared to, and perhaps come up with insights on the other end of the metaphor, which is presumably your product or your process or your company or whatever. Probably the most popular metaphor since the invention of software development as a discipline is the metaphor of the software shop as a factory. You hear this in lots of different forms. For example, the idea of reusable libraries is compared to the idea of interchangeable parts which of course is one of the inventions or developments that enabled the industrial revolution in the 19th century. Now this comparison is a beautiful idea because of what factories do. They produce valuable things very quickly and at high quality. They're very predictable and they're relatively inexpensive to staff and in fact can often be automated by robots. But this beautiful metaphor when applied to software development or in fact any product development is also extremely disappointing because it fundamentally misunderstands what happens in a factory doing mass production. What a factory does is a copy function. Some factories can make variations in the copies, like different car models, based on a few particular designs, but basically the function they fulfill is copying. And of course, in software development especially, the copy function is actually trivial. We can make copies of our software infinitely, as many as we want, with perfect quality, And we can do it literally as fast as the speed of light, if necessary. So the whole factory that's used for manufacturing dozens of new cars per day is replaced, in the software world, with one command. Copy. Take this software I wrote and copy it and send a copy of it to the customer. Now, of course, in 2019, we don't even do that anymore. For many of our applications, the copy is virtual. When you log into the server, you basically get to run the copy of the application that's already in memory, along with all the other customers of the application vendor. So in one sense, software development, part of it, is like a factory, but that's trivial and it doesn't achieve what people are hoping for when they try to apply the factory metaphor to software development. And to explain this, let's talk a little bit about making cars. This is a subject that actually kind of fascinates me. 
So let's assume Ford has decided it's going to do a new car model. In fact, the major manufacturers refresh their car lines every three or four years. It used to be four years, now it's closer to three. And that means that for three or four years, every new Ford Focus, for example, has basically the same fundamental design. The same body panels, the same engine, the same undercarriage and suspension. Now I'm oversimplifying a bit in this example, but it's basically accurate. And I don't know if 2020 is a model you refresh for the Ford Focus, or if they even still make the Ford Focus. Happens to be a car that I like. There might be small cosmetic changes over the course of a style run of three to four years. They might change the paint colors on offer. They might upgrade the radio or shuffle the various options between the different trim levels, but nothing major. In particular, the body panels stay the same and the drivetrain stays mostly the same. Now, these focuses are all built in one factory or maybe a few factories, and those production lines only make Ford focuses. They don't make trucks or Lincoln Town cars, only focuses. And no matter what trim version of the Focus sedan it is, they can crank those babies out of the factory dozens a day. And then, after three or four years, there's a new version of the Focus sedan. It has new body panels, maybe new suspension, new lines, new drivetrain. Although, actually, even then, most of it isn't really new. It's slightly improved drivetrain and things like that. So let's talk about what Ford did to enable them to put out that new model of the Focus. When they do the new model, again, they can create them really fast in the factory. So first of all, think of the new Focus model that's coming to market in late 2019. That's a 2020 model, by the way. Let's say it's a changeover year where there's new body panels, new drivetrain, etc. So how did this happen? Well, it started about three years ago, maybe more. Ford started the planning and design for this new model that's just now seeing the light of day in 2019. They started designing it three years ago. First of all, there's probably six months of planning and development of requirements. What should this new version do or look like or say to the market that the current version doesn't? So once planning has been going on for a while, the initial design work, prototyping and testing of new ideas, that starts going. This might involve creating mock-ups of the car, including what are called mules that can be taken out on the road to test the new running gear. But they're not just creating working mock-ups to test the car's engine and running gear. They're also designing how the new model will look. They might use a clay model to test out their new ideas. That's a car-sized piece of modeling clay that people model with their hands and with hand tools. I'll put a link in the show notes to a story about why car manufacturers are still using clay models. So when the initial design in clay is completed, the engineers transfer that design to their computer-aided design and computer-aided engineering systems. There they do more modeling and often a lot of testing and refining of the design. The clay model, of course, doesn't have any interaction, so they can't be sure if the doors will actually open correctly, for example. And that kind of thing can be tested in the computer-aided engineering models. Likewise, for other types of interferences and also manufacturability. In this stage, they might also be focusing on how to reduce costs. The original body design might be simplified, so some of the panels only require four hits from the sheet metal press instead of five hits. So how long does it take to design a new set of body panels for a changeover model? Well, about a year. That's for the design. There are many complications that have to be handled, from does it look good, to do these parts fit together well, and can I still open the door, to does it conform to U.S. and international safety regulations, to can we do it cheaper, and of course, there's always the fundamental question, can we build it? So that's the design part. Now what happens next? Well, the manufacturing engineers have to figure out how to create those new body panels. Note that they have many knowns in this process. They 
likely know the material that will be used for the body panels, the factories in which the body panels will be produced, the metal forming machines, the drop presses and robotic welders that will be used to make the panels and to assemble the car, the required duty cycles, and most importantly, they have hundreds of person years of experience in how to make manufacturing processes to produce body panels. And just to let you know, the way body panels are created is pretty amazing. They start as flat sheets of steel, and these flat sheets are loaded into a series of giant punch presses, which contain multi-ton dies, which stamp the car panel into shape, punch out the various holes in the panel, roll over edges, create flanges, and so on. The goal is to hit the panel with a die only once in any location that will be, will be visible. So as you can imagine, the design and manufacture of these dies is a critical part of the process of getting a new car to the showroom. And as I said, designing the panels takes about a year, then engineering and manufacturing the dies to create the panels and fixing any problems takes a, about another year. So those are just a few of the activities. There's a lot more, like the new drivetrain, which may be only a slightly updated motor or it might be a whole new transmission system. Then eventually, they shut the factory down for a week and install the new dies, equip all the machines with the new parts and jigs, program the robots to make the welds, and so on. One week, at least, of no production of cars. And notably, once they've done this switchover, they can no longer build the previous version of the car. It's gone forever. So, this story is getting long, so let me cut to the chase. Building the cars in a factory, once all that design stuff has been done, is like our copy button. They are fast, but we are way faster. And we're also much higher quality. We always get the copy right. The part of car manufacturing that's like what we think of as software product development is this three-year slog to design a new car model, then building the manufacturing capability to create it in bulk, which takes three years. And at the end of that, you have a car that has four wheels, just like all other cars, has an internal combustion engine, most likely, and maybe has a couple extra cup holders. While at the same time, a software company has released a new application that potentially changed every aspect of life, like a Facebook or Amazon Prime or Fortnite or Slack. So in short, my summary of the factory metaphor, the feature factory concept is a dumb metaphor because in a factory, the cars, or whatever, are produced after a very long design period. And it's the design period that's the equivalent of writing software. That's the part of the metaphor that everyone seems to miss. I don't know why this is, but it's kind of amazing to me that people are not thinking these things through a little bit better. So that's the factory metaphor, hopefully laid to rest, at least in your mind, after hearing this. Now let's look at a metaphor, or really a family of metaphors, that I think is a lot more useful day-to-day -day for people building software products for people to use. I'll give you a metaphor that helps you think about your product's usability and functionality, and another metaphor that helps you think about your organization's ability to produce products. These are closely related, these two metaphors. If you think of your product as a restaurant, serving fine food and its service, that's the start of the first metaphor. Your customers are patrons of the restaurant. They're here because some friends or an online site recommended it, or perhaps because they've been here before and had an enjoyable meal. Your user interface is the waiter and the menu. Think about the user interface of a good restaurant. When you enter the restaurant, you're greeted politely. If you're a regular, you might be welcomed by name. And at a very good restaurant, they might start preparing your preferred cocktail. When you're seated, you're given menus, the waiter introduces him or herself, and usually asks about drinks if you don't have them already. The waiter might mention the specials at this point or might wait until after the drinks are delivered. The waiter then rushes off to fetch your drink orders while you're perusing the menu. Then the waiter comes back, 
answers any questions you might have, offers to come back later if you need more time, and eventually takes your order. In the process of ordering, you might ask for slight changes in the dishes, maybe mashed potatoes instead of roasted, or extra vegetables instead of rice. And at a good restaurant, these changes will be accommodated with pleasure. So I'm going to stop the narrative here because we've seen enough already to start messing around with it a little bit. This is a normal, expected, and it sounds like a delightful dining experience. I hope these people's dinner continues on like this and that their meals are as pleasing as the experience. So let's see what the experience would be like if we turned the metaphor around and said the restaurant experience was like the experience of using many software products. You arrive at the restaurant with a reservation, but it's lost. It's under a name you forget. So you need to reset the reservation. So the restaurant has to text you a code. It takes five minutes to get the code, but you use it to reset your reservation. Oh, but you used an illegal character in your password, but you don't know which one it was or what the legal characters are. Eventually, you get into the restaurant. You're seated. The waiter hands you, instead of a menu of exquisitely prepared dishes developed by a professional chef, a list of ingredients that you can choose from. Not a complete list, of course. And in fact, it's up to you to figure out what you'll be eating tonight and how it will be prepared. Unfortunately, the grilled T-bone steak with Bernays sauce you decide on isn't really possible because, well, the restaurant doesn't support Bernays sauce yet. That's coming in the next version. In the middle of ordering, another waiter comes by with a dessert menu. Oops, you dismiss her. But you have to start your original order again because the first waiter disappeared when the dessert waiter arrived, and when he reappears, he's forgotten what you already told him. And so on. All of these are, of course, things that would never happen in a real restaurant, but I'm sure you'll agree that they all have happened in software products you've used, and perhaps even software products you've released yourself. But it illustrates why the restaurant metaphor is so powerful. You can think about something your product does, some part of the user experience, and ask yourself, what's the analog of this experience at a good restaurant? This metaphor came to me from Alan Cooper in his great book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, about the reasons why most software and high-tech products are so terrible. This is in a chapter called Politeness, about how software can be and should be polite. And he uses the metaphor of a waiter to describe 14 types of politeness. I have created a mind map for myself that lists out the 14 types of politeness, and I've used it to help me design polite features. I truly credit this metaphor for one of the coolest features I ever developed. I'll link to this mind map in some form in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 331. But restaurants aren't good only for politeness metaphors. They're also great for thinking about your capacity and capability for delivering solutions. And this metaphor arose for me from watching Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares series, the original one from England. Gordon Ramsay is a famous British chef. He's famous for making great food and having excellent restaurants, but also for being very angry all the time. I don't know if he's like that in real life, but on his TV shows, he's very angry. He would go around to various failing restaurants in England and attempt to fix them. And one particular restaurant really stuck with me. This restaurant, somewhere in the hinterlands of England, some small town or other, had a beautiful menu filled with continental delicacies like beef wellington, which is actually English, not continental, I guess, and veal saltimbocca. The problem was that if you ordered one of these, you got something terrible and not really related to what the dish was supposed to be. There turned out to be two big problems in this kitchen. One was that the chef didn't actually know anything about cooking fine cuisine. He just put those dishes on the menu more or less because he liked the sound of them, and he wanted his restaurant to sound fancy. But the other problem was that the kitchen itself was broken down. 
burners didn't work on the stove, the walk-in fridge didn't get cold, and so on. And ever since then, I've thought about the metaphor of the broken-down kitchen for software development. Obviously, the kitchen and the chef is like a software development team. There are two big lessons. If you have a chef who doesn't know how to cook fancy meals, don't put fancy meals on the menu. That is, don't sign up to develop software that you're not capable of building. You will surely fail. And if you have a broken kitchen, you need to fix your kitchen before you kill someone with salmonella. In other words, if your processes can't produce quality software products, then you have to fix your processes before you can be successful. I hope this illustrates that metaphors are really powerful for helping us think through things cognitively. I could say a lot more about both the factory, car design, manufacturing metaphor for product development, but I've already gone on long enough. And the kitchen restaurant metaphors for software development are actually a lot more powerful and give you better insights, partly because they're not exactly the same. Building a car is creating a product, whereas running a restaurant is a little bit different, and it's different enough that the metaphors kind of gain a little bit of power, I think. So if you want to apply this thinking, here's some things you can start doing today. First, if someone says something about making the software development process more like a factory, you now know a lot more information about what you can say to that person. Like, for example, oh, you want us to take three years to get a new version of the software out like a car company? I think we can do better than that. My second recommendation is to get that book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum by Alan Cooper. I'll put a link in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 331, but you can get it anywhere you buy books. This book has given me two powerful mental models I use all the time. The first is the 18 types of politeness model using the waiter, as I just shared. The other is the idea of personal goals. I've done some writing and podcasting about personal goals, and I'll put some links to those articles and episodes in the show notes as well. Finally, you can download my mind map of the 18 types of politeness, or go get the book and make your own mind map, and start using it while creating your next feature. It will assuredly give you some good insights into how to make your feature more delightful, more responsive, and more engaging. In the show notes, as I mentioned, at alltheresponsibility.com slash 331, you will find links to the book and the mind map and the episodes and articles I mentioned. You will also find links on that page to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes or clicking the recommend button in your podcast player. In Overcast, it's a little star on the episode. Your recommendations help others find the podcast, so it really helps me out and spreads the word. And of course, you can also share the podcast with your friends and colleagues directly. Most podcast players allow you to do that. If you would like to support the podcast, which I create totally out of my own pocket with no ads, you're always welcome to support me via my Patreon at patreon.com slash Davis. There are a few different levels with different bonuses. So until the next episode, this is Nels Davis for all the responsibility, none of the authority. Bye-bye. Fire. Four, three, two, one. We have ignition.